0: Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a joke that you've probably heard. A group of Episcopalians get together and decide to study the Bible. They approach their vicar and say, Vicar, we want to study the Bible. What should we study? Where do we start? The vicar, astonished and delighted at his apparent brilliance in shepherding his flock toward this end, says, ah, yes, how about the Psalms? Go and read the Psalms for a few weeks and then come back and tell me what you've learned. Bring me your questions. So off they go. They crack off, crack open their Bibles right smack dab in the middle. They find the Psalms and they read them. A few weeks later, coming back to the vicar, they say, Vicar, this is a scandal. The Bible has copied the Book of Common Prayer. (laughs) That's not something that would happen in this congregation, coming as many of us do from traditions that started us off on the milk of Scripture and grew us up into the prayers of the Book of Common Prayer. Even if you've been Episcopalian your whole life, I've always found that this congregation takes scripture with particular seriousness, for which I'm so grateful. I learned so much sitting in Bible studies with y'all. And so it won't have... Been lost on you that Jesus's quotation this morning isn't only a reference to those beloved Psalms, Psalm 118 to be precise, though I had to look up what number it was, but also part of the liturgy that we recite every single time we pray together for God to send His Holy Spirit to fill up the bread and the wine with his very presence, that when we would put it into our bodies, his presence would strengthen us, giving us energy, courage, discernment, and kindness to live as vessels of his love in the world. What does it mean, then, that we call up this passage of scripture this morning every time that we eat the Last Supper? What are we acknowledging or committing ourselves to with the action of receiving the bread and wine under the blessing of those words? Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. These words that are offered so strangely and prophetically by Jesus in the gospel lesson this morning into the ears of sympathetic religious people. There's a lot of evil, a maid, about the evil of the Pharisees. They're those religious people we love to hate. They're the self-righteous ones who think that they don't need a savior. The bad guys of scripture. The ones who think they're sinless, but they're really no better than anybody else. Except in this story, their action is a good one. They're not throwing Jesus at the feet of Herod or themselves spitting on him. They're warning him, urging him to protect himself. They wanna help him out. Just like so many groups of people, liberals or conservatives, Bible thumpers or social justice warriors, Pharisees can't be painted with one broad brushstroke. Indeed, Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus by night was himself a Pharisee. And Joseph of Arimathea, the man who took Jesus' body for burial after his crucifixion, was a member of the Jewish council called the Sanhedrin, before which Jesus had stood to be tried. So the first thing that we can learn from this passage this morning, the first thing to consider about what we're committing ourselves to as we partake of the bread and the wine under the blessing of him who comes in the name of the Lord, is that Jesus' message is for everyone. Not just the prostitutes or the notorious sinners, but also, as scripture describes Joseph Joseph of Arimathea, those who are seeking the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't only spend his time in drug dens or brothels, but also with the lady in the nursing home, whose Bible's pages are wearing away at the corners from use. Jesus doesn't only spend time on street corners or with the lepers, but also around family dinner tables and snuggling with kids on his lap. I've been doing this devotional for Lent, and it includes a version of what's called the Ignatian Examine. Ignatius was a a priest and theologian back in the 1500s who's famous for founding the Jesuits and also for developing this set of questions to help guide holy self-reflection on a regular basis. The two questions that I've had to ask myself every day since Lent started are, how has God loved me today? And how have I loved God and my neighbor today? Well, I've also often considered loving God and neighbor as bringing a casserole to a new mom or spending time in prayer with a stranger. The moments that come to my mind and heart at the end of each day have been much more to do with the intimate relationships in my life. Jesus' message, his his message of God's love, is not just for the big, dramatic outpourings of sacrifice, though those are good too. Jesus' message and God's love is for pouring into our children, for pouring into the next-door neighbor who we see each day watering her plants on her front porch. It's for the relationships that form and shape our lives each day and each week that God most often sends his messages through. It's both the religious people and the ones who never darken the door of the church who need God's love from us and through us. The other thing to notice in this passage this morning is that Jesus seems determined that his death will happen and that it will happen in Jerusalem. Listen as he says, "'Today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way "'because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed "'outside of Jerusalem.'" Historically, prophets were killed both inside and outside Jerusalem. So what's the difference in the case here? Jerusalem's name means city of peace, shalom. Though we know from history as well as situations in our own day that Jerusalem is far from a bastion of great and abiding peace or shalom. In our world. In this case, Jerusalem is a symbol for all of Israel. Just like on September 11th, New York City was a symbol for all of the United States. In the time of Jesus, the symbol of God's people, who Jesus himself made clear is actually all people throughout all the world, but in the symbol, like New York City or Jerusalem, God's people are the Israelites, the Hebrew people. What happened to them and the story about them is the story of God and humanity, that intimate relationship. It's the same story that they experience and the same story that we experience. We Christians are poured in, stirred into, mixed up among, rubbing shoulders with, in a fuzzy space-time continuum sort of way, with all of God's people throughout all time. It's called the communion of the saints. Just like the Israelites, We wander in the desert. There's a desert in your life somewhere right now. There's somewhere in your life that God wants to free you from bondage to sin, to drag you, take you out of Egypt. The same stories play out over and over And in this piece of scripture this morning, this passage where Jesus is set on getting himself to Jerusalem, all the layers and pieces of this story and this history are coming together, layered up on top of themselves, the promised land of God, the city of David, Jerusalem, all coming together in one time and place. And in its truest form, that's exactly what happens when we gather on Sunday mornings, this very moment. Not only do we proclaim, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, but we pray for the Holy Spirit to descend, just like it did in tongues of fire on Pentecost in Jerusalem. Not only do we break Jesus' body in two, the way that he offered himself for us, but we pray the words that he taught his disciples to recite, Our Father, who art in heaven. Just like happens in the story of Jesus here today and throughout the passages we'll continue to read in Lent, There are layers and layers of scripture and history and human experience and story all piled up together when we kneel to pray (coughs) these same words that Christians have said for hundreds of years, more than a thousand. And it's a moment when, just like scripture says happened when Jesus died on the cross, The veil in the temple was split in two from top to bottom. Any separation between God and humanity, between God and you, God and me, is burned up, thrown away, dissolved when Jesus offers himself in love on the cross. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus says, on the third day, I finish my work. We know that it wasn't literally three days later that Jesus was killed after this pronouncement in scripture, or that he was resurrected, and so we can understand what Jesus says as being the third day of his passion, the ordeal that he underwent at the hands of the government and the powers of evil in Jerusalem. The end of his work, the finished product, is not the cross, is not death, is not suffering. But it is life everlasting. He spends today and tomorrow, he says, casting out demons and performing cures. These small, immediate, temporal ways that he can bring life and ease the suffering of people. He can provide food for the hungry thousands on the hillside. He can sing a lullaby to a child who's had a bad dream or just needs a little extra love. He can sit with the man in the hospital whose family has abandoned him. And these are good ways to bring the presence of God into the lives of those who are suffering. And needy. But these people, whatever comfort he offers, whatever comfort we might offer, will still suffer mortal death. Only God in Jesus Christ can cure that. So our call is not only to Wipe the brow of the ailing or to tuck the scared child into bed, but to bring the good news of everlasting life. That Jesus has come, has died, and has risen again to new and unending life. That we might follow him, imitate him, and be a vessel of his very body and blood to the world, his own beloved people, all people. So come to the altar where Jesus offered himself to us and here, kneeling before the Lord of Lords, find your life given to you. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen.